absolutely ridiculous. Welcome to Around the Course Squash Podcast. And with me ever is Stuart Crawford and Christopher Sackfee. We have Laura Massaro coming in a little bit later to talk about her new book, All In, her journey to become a world squash champion. Before that, lads, how are you doing? Good. You're going to give us all the details on Laura's book since she got it 24 hours ago, right? Got it 24 hours ago. I did. And <laughs> yeah. And you said you haven't finished you it yet. I haven't Slapping. finished it yet. Have you read the front? Read the I've front read, cover and the I've back the, cover. I've read the front cover, the back cover. I looked at the pictures. I read the prologue, and I'm going to start it on the weekend. Busy week, lads. Busy week. <laughs> you know, yeah. could be fun. our uh, could be our first book report, first podcast book report. Actually, second. But the first time we brought the author, or the author came on the show, and we talked about a uh, uh, range, Epstein's book. Yeah, that was. Yeah, but that we kind of talked about the podcast more than the book. That's back because it covered the book back in the early days when there wasn't actually any squash to talk about. That was what kept us entertained. Yeah, yeah, or kept the listeners entertained. I hope all six of them (laughs) (laughs) at that point, probably. (laughs) Yeah, how we how far we've come. Speaking of, it's been a year. I didn't realize that. Did you? We missed our anniversary. Yeah, we missed our missed our own anniversary. I mean, it's my it's like guys. It's my annual tradition to miss my anniversary. So <laughs> <laughs> now nothing, you have two to miss. Nothing new there for me. Uh, so romantic. <laughs> yeah. There's been a bit of activity in the squash world with some of the satellites. I think one thing, just a shout out to Mike Harris, about he ran a PSA event ran a squash camp alongside it, a junior tournament, played in the tournament as well as ran it, lost in the semis. Pretty good for an old fella, I would say. And in the sport world in general, Naomi Osaka. I was pretty fascinated by it just because I think it's such an interesting debate about the importance of um, interviews and media and how that fits into the current landscape with social media in particular. Um, First off, I think Naomi Osaka Naomi Osaka is absolutely phenomenal. She's one of my favorite athletes. I think the the way she just seems to be sort of comfortable being herself, but you can obviously tell that she's not entirely comfortable, especially in certain environments. But I thought the stand she took last year during the US Open, and actually before the US Open, she she sort of withdrew from the tournament leading up to the US Open. I can't remember. I think it was one of the Masters Series events. Indy 500. Yeah, it was the one that's normally held in Cincinnati, but I think it was being held in New York as part of the bubble for the US Open. Um, but she was due to play the semifinals and she essentially withdrew from the tournament. And then this was the day following the death of George Floyd, I believe. Um, and she basically took a stand and said that this isn't right. Um, in the end, the tournament organizers actually postponed the entire tournament for a day and she was able to complete her semi-final the following day. Um, and then she went on and played the US Open. And if you remember, she was wearing a face mask coming onto the court with the name of uh, seven different um, African-Americans that had died mostly at the, the hands of the police. Um, but just her willingness to put herself out there, take a stand against something that's clearly important to her. Um, I'm sure she got a lot of back- backlash. Um, if you follow the Colin Kaepernick story, you can see the amount of backlash she's had, so I'm sure she was no different. But it's obviously something that means a lot to her, and she's she's willing to stand up for something that she believes strongly in. So I give her full credit, and I love the way that she ended up winning the tournament. I thought that was just poetic justice that, she got that reward. Yeah the the most recent the most recent um, you know drop out here for the concerns around mental health and just like the amount of media. I think that's a tough one in in every sport right now. There's some there's some like NBA basketball players that I think are and and football players in the NFL that just like they're just like really not pumped about talking to the media. 
And it's just, it's, there's, there's two sides of it because the contracts are massive and not a, a lot of that comes from like fan engagement and, and what the media is doing. But on the flip side, I mean, you know, you do see these ter- like just stupid interviews and terrible questions being asked of them. And I'm sure for her, she's trying to stand up for so much outside of just her herself, you know, having, having that weight on her. Plus if people are kind of constantly prodding her for her opinion on things outside of tennis, it's probably a lot to take in and in, in the moment. Yeah. Your point on stupid questions, but I wonder how many of those journalists in there are actually, you know, tennis fanatics and like really excited to be reporting on the sport and understand the sport uh, enough to ask questions relating to the to the match that they saw or someone's actual thoughts on the match ahead or how they're going to move forward from a difficult loss or whatever. Because some of the questions are just stupid. And like you say, sometimes they're in there not overly excited because they know they're going to be faced with people who don't really understand what's going on either about the sport or what it's like to be a sports person, especially in an individual sport. Stupid questions. Especially at the Grand Slams. Right now, um, I know from Wimbledon that the amount of press coverage in, in the UK just goes through the roof around Wimbledon. And you, you go from most tournaments, it's predominantly tennis journalists that are covering the sport, to suddenly all the national newspapers and TV channels are there. And a lot of them have got a slightly different take. They're trying to get news stories that aren't necessarily tennis-specific or tennis-related. They're trying to get almost gossip that they can can use to to sell tabloids. Um, and I think that's a very different type of questioning that comes from those sort of people because they do have a, a separate agenda. I mean, Naomi sort of referenced the fact that she, she sometimes doesn't like some of the questioning she gets. Um, I would imagine most tennis journalists are asking fairly authentic questions, and I don't think there's anything wrong with asking someone that's just lost why they think that might happen or what happened when you serve this double fault. But when they're sort of straying off topic into other realms of your personal life, then I think it's a bit dangerous. Yeah. Yeah, I was I was gonna say the exact same thing, Stuart, about the the head the headline grabs, right? Like it it pays for some of these journalists. That's how they can kind of make a name in the sport by uh by bring by you know, making a loud statement or getting someone angry, their name kind of gets attached to that story. Um, it gets picked up by the national media and some people no press is bad press, as they say in the biz. Right. I don't know if we'd agree with that. And that's probably, I mean, that's the thing that I think you see so many athletes get mad about is people trying to get under their skin to get us to get them angry, to get a story, they get attached to it, and then they get a little following. I mean, if you look at some of these guys, Stephen A. Smith. I don't know how much you guys watch ESPN. I know you're all you probably watch all your UK sports channels, but uh, <laughs> ESPN. Like, there's guys that have made millions and millions of dollars by just by just spouting garbage for you know, just like takes that no one else believes in so that they get picked up and then that, and then people talk about their awful take but it, it their name is always in the in the mix isn't that what we do except we don't get paid millions yeah and not all of what we talk is shit yeah true. <laughs> so yeah. maybe some of it is i don't know um, <laughs> be so determined what, i think the other side of the story though is that there is a slight danger with um, allowing sports stars to basically control their own narrative and only basically talk to their fans through social media because I think there is a case that athletes in general should be held accountable. They should be asked questions that they maybe find a little bit challenging and uncomfortable. Um, and yeah, I think it's a bit dangerous to allow athletes to sort of neglect their obligations to the media. Tennis is obviously completely different to squash because of the, the money and I was reading there's something like 60 million euro prize money at the French Open and a large percentage of that comes from television contracts um, and those television contracts probably come with stipulations from those broadcasters that they will have access to the, the top players through not just the, the matches themselves but then post-match interviews. But um, I also find it quite interesting that 
Osaka was reluctant to speak to the news or the, the press and do press conferences, but yet she did. She made that statement through social media, and I would imagine social media is as sort of as dangerous a, a place to to speak to your fans as anywhere. The good thing about well, the one thing in social media's favour is that it's on your own terms. So you can kind of prepare yourself to post something and prepare yourself to send a message about something, you know, and, and maybe you can even, you know, you can type, delete, type, delete, type, you know, to, and you can read it out a few times before you feel absolutely, you know, certain that the language that you use is, you know, getting the point across in the way that you want it to get across. And so it's very hard then to misinterpret what you say through social when if you know because you're given the opportunity or you have the ability to you know release that post as a when you see fit and when you're comfortable with what you've written yeah definitely a little easier than the, the live i mean you see people make mistakes and then say oh that was misinterpreted wrong what i put on my social but uh yeah no i think we're just living in an age where like athletes are definitely taking back some of the control um, in a ton of areas of sport, but it's like, yeah, it's going to be this, uh, this balance, right? I mean, if players want to, if it's hard, if players want to sit out and rest, like I think any decent human being is like, that's, that should be their choice. They shouldn't be fined or they shouldn't, you know, receive public backlash, but then on the flip side, right. That like those 60 million Euro prize purses, if, uh, if multiple top players start taking extended breaks or majors or anything like that, it's, you can see the trickle down effect is probably going to hurt the, the sponsorships and the television contracts. Yeah. And the landscape's completely changed. I read a really Just interesting... Just to say that, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. I read a really interesting article about how historically it's almost been a two-way relationship where the media needed the athletes um, and the, the athletes also needed the media because without that, there was no way to get the story across. But now with social media, that's completely changed. The, the athletes don't rely on the, the media anywhere near as much as the media now rely on the athletes. So the, the, the balance of power has completely shifted in favour of the athletes. So I think that we are going to see things change. But I also don't think that they should go all in one direction. Yeah. The, yeah, like there's probably a lot of athletes who have bigger personal followings than like league accounts. I would imagine I could be way off there, but that's just a, that's just a guess. Well, will we, will we let Laura in? Let's get to take in. someone that let might her, actually know what they're talking about. That's maybe let her all in Arthur. Hey. Sorry guys. Hey. There she is. <laughs> there was a there, there was like waiting to let be let into the meeting and then the door went and then I was off over there. How are you all uh, doing? Yeah, good, thanks. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, all good. Sitting just in front of the gin bar. I was just reading that in the background. I thought that's what it said. <laughs> yeah. Did I not show you that last time I was on? I don't know. I think so. Oh my gosh. Let me just show you. Oh, <laughs> oh it's, it's an actual gin bar. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. I knew you were in. I look like an alcoholic all the time, you know. Uh, I, I would say a connoisseur of gin. Oh, wow. That yeah. is. This was my retirement present to myself. That's far too high end for an alcoholic, Laura. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Amazing. Yeah, it's cool. They reckon that the, the guy was like stressing because he reckons there's about 80, 80 kgs worth of uh, waiting that door with the gin and the bottles and everything like that. <laughs> Jeez, I thought you were going to say 80 grand worth of gin. Someone <laughs> <laughs> else said that before. I was like, no, not quite that much. But, yeah. How's the podcast been going? Yeah. I mean, you've not listened to all 50-odd episodes since you were last on. I listen to the ones I'm interested in. <laughs> fair, enough. fair enough, yeah, yeah. That's fair. Well, just got this in the huh. post yesterday. Yeah. So pretty excited. Amazing. Um, yeah, it's uh I, I must admit I haven't read anything. I've looked at the pictures and I've read the front cover, the back cover, and uh, the prologue. So I'm gonna start on the weekend. That's what you usually look at in a book, is it not? Yeah, well it's the first thing I look at. <laughs> and then I think, oh maybe I'll pick it up. I don't know. Uh, well 
Well, that's great. Thanks yeah. for ordering it. Where do you get it from? Uh, Amazon. Oh, bro. Okay. Yeah. Told you I'm waiting for the audiobook. It's hard to run and read at the same time, but audiobook. <laughs> audiobooks work great. I don't know if I don't know if you want to listen to me though while you run in. <laughs> I was gonna ask, are you are you narrating? Yeah. Nice. Yeah, well, the cool thing is as well, so it's got it's got guest chapters running throughout the book and they're all recording their own chapter, which is quite which is kind of cool too. So apart apart from a couple like COVID hit and they were down south, it was hard to sort of get them in, but DP Mark, Danny, uh, Peter, they've all recorded their own. So, class. Yeah. Do you ever wonder what you sound like on double speed? (laughs) (laughs) Well, now I am, yeah. (laughs) Now I'm I'm wondering. Um, But no, hopefully it's all right. That's how Stuart listens to his audio books and podcasts. Yeah, I know. I get through them quickly. You know know what's funny, though? So we were in the car last week uh, or a couple of weeks ago self carry and Nola and you know if we if I have a podcast on in the car I don't I don't listen quite double speed but not far off and Nola and Kerry in the car that the only rule is it has to be normal speed and so <laughs> when you go back to that and you're used to these guys like saying like x amount of words in a minute right and yeah. then all of a sudden it's like you feel like you're listening to them speaking after after a bottle of gin it's like so <laughs> slow yeah that's true you never actually know Laura. She might have just nipped behind her closet in the back. Yeah, I've also got like someone. Someone gave me this at the weekend as well. I'm like, um, oh, beauty. So I'm like right here, and it's right here as well. But I, I don't know if question. you guys know that I'm that I'm pregnant or not. So I'm I'm obviously off the gin at the moment, and it's just everywhere. And then <laughs> who gives a pregnant lady two bottles of beer and a bottle of gin as a well done present? <laughs> <laughs> Danny will be happy with that. I'll just look after these for you for the for yeah, now. Exactly, exactly. Oh, congratulations. Jeez, yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, Thank I didn't know. Didn't know. I, I, yeah. I did see something on social, but you never know. Like someone put a, a baby top on. Yeah, yeah. It was <laughs> a bit cryptic, but I thought, I don't know, just sort of was worried that people might just think I'm really fat in lockdown, but then didn't <laughs> want to do like a cheesy announcement. So I don't know, just sort of found this cute baby grow and thought that'll do <laughs> oh man it's amazing yeah geez amazing thanks I, yeah hopefully should should be fun hopefully oh it's, it's the best thing in the world it's not without its challenge but it is so good yeah so. i can i can imagine it's quite hard the dog's just decided to uh yeah grab a ball we don't need him chasing that ball <laughs> god i remember when carrie was we hadn't announced it and she's maybe four months in and we were just starting to get the word out so remember brian patch shout out patch he comes in and he's like oh carrie geez you look great are you pregnant carrie stone face no <laughs> right and so i'm on court <laughs> just up the way and and patch is distraught and he comes up to me he's like arthur geez i just i'm after landing it in with carrie what can i do it's like then carrie comes around the corner absolutely rolling around the floor laughing <laughs> 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 and he was like you bugger that is evil I mean, it is that that four month part. I think I'm starting to show a little bit more now. So hopefully people can really see. But that (laughs) three to four month period kind of is really, it really is. You just look like you've got a, you just put a tire on around your waist. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So it's tough. It's tough because people don't know and you look like you've put weight on and do the, but hopefully showing a bit more now. So cool. Well, look, thanks again. Thanks for coming back on uh, and to speak to us and massive congratulations on the book all in it's um like i said i haven't we haven't read it yet what was it like did you find the the whole process writing the book uh, therapeutic did you learn stuff about yourself or yeah i think the i think the the process of i mean obviously i'd help writing it i'm not going to try and sell the fact that i'm anywhere near intelligent enough to write a book myself especially one that i hope is as good as this is um so i went through a lot of the a lot of the sort of editing process um and that was really really interesting and um the diary entries as well what I wanted to do was run diary entries throughout the throughout the book um so after you know a particularly bad loss or a big win or something like that I thought it'd be really interesting to go back through all of my old diaries and kind of dig out what I was thinking and feeling at the time and I think the one thing I realized was um 
I did well the one thing I didn't realize that was happening during my career that I realized reading back was that I was on basically a merry-go-round of the same the same kind of things over and over again so it was like I was playing really well and then I got cocky and then I lost and then I had to get back under the line and then I worked really hard and trained and then I won and then I got injured and then I went to a tournament and then I got ill and then I was trying to play a tournament on the back of like not feeling confident being ill and and it was like this it was literally a merry-go-round for 10 years of and and I can honestly say that going through all of those individual things at the time felt like I'd never been through them before and I've tried to say that a bit in my coaching now look at now I've looked back and I know that someone has an injury or something happens and you think it's the world's biggest problem at the time for you and your squash and half of them I don't even remember little illnesses little little niggles where you've had to go in a little bit short or played really well and then got cocky and got taken down a peg or two and then been like this is rubbish and yeah it was it, so that was really interesting to kind of read back through all of those I think it's a constant balance as well because you you kind of want a bigger perspective of seeing the long-term view but I think it's also important to be in the moment and to be giving everything you've got at that particular day, day's practice and I always talk to players about it might feel really important but if you can't remember the score of a practice like drill a week later then it's probably not that important whereas there's certain matches in your career that you'll remember for the next 10 years now yeah. they obviously are important yeah. and being able to separate that is a skill but also you don't want to lose that desire and competitiveness in that you can't just go oh it doesn't matter because it's just practice because that's the thing that's going to help you achieve your goals in the long run so yeah um, it's a really fine balance between having that ability to kind of, especially like in practice, almost compete in that practice session like it's, you know, I don't want to say a world championship final because that's a bit much, but you want to compete like it means something because that's when you can replicate, you know, the reality of um, a match or the pressure and things like that. But at the same time, you don't want to be kind of getting too down with results that are there in practice and, I think I think the main thing was just just realizing, yeah, like at the time it felt huge, and looking back, it really wasn't so huge. And although every single situation feels completely unique, you're like, yeah, but I've never had this injury before. It was didn't matter what the injury was; you were dealing with another injury or going into it a week out from a tournament and missing being a little bit short, worried if you were okay. Same with illness. And it, it, you're right though with the practice; it's really important to get that balance right and and try and give it everything you've got in practice and then kind of kind of leave it there when it's when it's done yeah I remember I think episode five I just looked it up uh, a second ago when you you and Danny came on and you were saying that you were reading through all your old journals and stuff so turned out to be a pretty good time to write a book right over the over the past um, 12 months (laughs) yeah and honestly now that things have opened back up over here in the UK and everybody wants you know everybody wants sessions and things are starting to kind of get back on with squads and things like that I don't actually know if I could have done it in normal times um maybe it's just because it's busy now but they're being able to sit down in front of my laptop and have half a day of editing or writing up those journals and filtering through was was a huge you know it was a huge task and um, probably having that little bit of time during lockdown, not that I would have wished it on anyone, but it was trying to, you know, make the most of, of what I had in that moment. And, um, and then, and then even just knowing when to release it, we still, dis- we decided in kind of February time, oh, March will go for a June release. And we didn't know if we'd be out of COVID or be able to do anything with it, but there was also something to be said for like, okay, we can't just keep sitting on, on this now we've got it it's been there it's been ready for since kind of january february so let's just go for it and at any point when you were going through your journals and, and putting the book together on and even just looking at the script and, and editing it did you ever feel like oof, i'm not quite sure if i should leave that in there like did you ever feel like a little i don't know if vulnerable is the right word but exposed might be a better word yeah i mean the first the first draft was um I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure to the reader, there's, there's not a huge difference, but to me, it felt, it feels like a different book from that first draft. And I was really, really worried um, about upsetting my dad and um, 
there's a few people already messaged me and said I've read chapter one and I can't believe like that story with your dad and a couple of other things I'm like oh no like that's what people are picking up on and I'm like yeah but did you also get the vibe you know did you also get the message across that you know as the book goes on that I am I, I am the player or was the player that I was because of how tough he was on me when I was younger and um they were like oh yeah yeah we got that as well and I'm like oh thank god so just kind of you know I was worried about that and we we rewrote and rewrote and actually when we're speaking to the editor it was her idea to actually go back to my dad and talk to him about that particular story that's in the book um and get his take on it because as a 15 16 year old junior squash player my take on the world and how big my squash is, is very different to a parent who's, you know, potentially trying to make ends meet and, you know, working himself to the bones to try and um, support me through my squash. And it was, I was really, really grateful for her to, to, for, for asking me and kind of putting that forward in my mind to go and speak to him because I had no idea that that was his perspective. And obviously it's my book, it's my perspective and so we had, we added that in at the end of that story as well about his perspective and what what he was thinking around that time and i think that it's things like that that are a great balance to the book and um i guess the other other side of it is just kind of you know several stories including players you're obviously careful you know you're aware that they're going to read it you don't want to be too harsh it's not about you know stabbing someone in the back or or twisting the knife it's about trying to have have honesty and come at it from my opinion. So a lot of those stories got re- rewritten about how I approached trying to beat Nicole and certain situations um, over the years that, you know, made me stronger, but but just needed to be tread carefully, let's say. You mentioned the word honesty there. One of the things that's always struck me is your willingness to be honest, even when it's quite often uncomfortable, I would imagine. And <laughs> I, actually, I listened to you talking to Jesse Engelbrecht on a really good, I don't know if it's a podcast or what you would describe it as, but um, you talk a lot about honesty there. And also your relationship with Danny has always struck me as even for a marriage and sort of married couple, you seem to be very direct with each other and he's, he's never afraid to give you the truth and you seem to appreciate that and also give it back sometimes. So how important was that in your career? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's up there as one of the top things, aside from probably, you know, aside from maybe the dedication commitment side of of making it to the top, I'd say that the honesty is pretty, pretty up there as a close second. Um, I mean, it's, it's something that's built over the years. And for all like, you know, whether you're a pro or whether you're a junior, it's something that is, it's a, it's a skill in, in a certain way to kind of learn how to take honesty and also how to give it. And it's not always easy and it doesn't always go down really well with me when someone is, is brutally honest straight away and there's a time and a place, but also as an athlete, um, you also should be the one asking those sort of questions, not just from yourself kind of, you know, okay, what honestly happened in that situation, but from, from the people around you and the people who know you really well. And I think that that's, that's something that I've really learned and then you obviously reap the reward of it and you see you see the positivity that comes from those sort of conversations and then that kind of makes you realize how worthwhile they are whereas if people are too tough on you or too hard on you then you're gonna you're gonna shy away from those sort of conversations because it's too it's just too painful and no one wants to have painful conversations um so there's a time and a place but I think it's I think it's definitely right up there um, have honesty with yourself, mainly probably more than anyone else, but then everyone else around you as well. I think the messenger also makes a big difference. If you know there's a genuine care and, and feeling there to, to help you as opposed to just someone being mean for the sake of it, like it's a lot easier to be, to be honest with someone like Danny or with BP because you know that there's a genuine desire to help you yeah. be the best that you possibly can from those people. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and there is, you're right, that when you were just saying about the book before, there's also an element of the vulnerability side as well. Um, and I think just one of the big things I'm, I'm really, really kind of excited to see how it goes down is within the book. One of the reasons for wanting to write the book was to try and 
give give back to someone or inspire someone with a story that might help them and the reason for that was because I've been so inspired by people's books and sporting autobiographies over the years and there's a couple of stories that spring to mind kind of reading Chrissy Wellington's book and one of her stories springing springing into my mind while I was mid-match with Nicole and it helping you know push me on in that match and I got I, I won the match and I kind of always say I won the match because I, I remembered that story at that time and it gave me the boost that I needed to get over the line um and I think that that was what was that's what's really kind of been exciting about the book and so at the back of the book I wanted to write down all of the well every single book that I've read throughout my career that's helped my squash so obviously not including Harry Potter novels and things like that but (laughs) whether it's like a psychological book or a self-help book or a spiritual book or an autobiography and there was when I wrote them all down there was over a hundred and that's what that's what's been really interesting to me and so when you talk about vulnerability one of the books I read was the Brené Brown book and she's got two or three that I've read one's one's on vulnerability and how vulnerability should be seen as a strength and not a weakness yet we all look at it as a as a weakness so a lot of people do anyway so even just little things like that and learning and growing and constantly trying to develop yourself in the best way that you can is is absolutely huge and particularly for athletes just just that the hair is in the back of me next stand up there (laughs) (laughs) great yeah i'm not going to write a book but uh geez yeah that's a very (laughs) unbelievably strong message i think i think the timing's great too like i mentioned it's obviously a you know like you said it's great great time to write a book when you have all this um you know time that you can't leave the house but also because we were all forced to be in the house for so long you know i read more books this year than i have in like the past decade so i think uh i'm in like full reading mode so you know i'm excited to (laughs) excited to get another one and i'm sure i'm sure other people are and yeah. the other the other timing piece I think you're really going to hit well is everyone's getting back on the squash court right now and they probably forgot but now they're remembering how mentally weak they were and your book <laughs> is going to like be able to help them get get their squash back. Absolutely yeah and also I mean I'm a big believer that um mental weakness can also be um like linked in massively with a physical weakness, which, you know, potentially could also be an issue (laughs) trying to go back on court. But um, yeah, like I remember a psychologist saying to me in the past, like we're trying to watch some videos back of me playing Nicole and he would say, um, he came around and I'm like, okay, you know, I've got it. I just, I think I've just basically got a mental problem. I can't get over the line. I can't put it together for long enough. Come on, tell me what I've got to do. You know, kind of wanting a psychologist to give you the answers. And he watched the match and at the end he just went, you haven't got a psychology problem, you've got a physical problem. And I was like, again, honesty, isn't it? I'm like, sorry, what? <laughs> <laughs> sorry, what? <laughs> Don't tell me. I work hard. I train hard. But Nicole, as you guys know, was like a different a different specimen when, she, when we were trying to catch her back in those kind of, you know, like 2008 to 2012, say. It was just... And he just said, until you can match her physically, then you can put, and that's where that, that's where that kind of line comes, isn't it? That it's like 80% mental, 20% physical. And I think, um, I got asked about this the other day, and I think it's a fair comment when both athletes are equal physically, then the 80% mental comes in. Like, it doesn't matter if I play a guy at my club, it doesn't matter how mentally strong he is, if he can't keep up with me physically or squash wise, it's not going to pay play how mentally strong he is. He's not going to play a part. But what he was trying to say to me was that if, if you can't last with Nicole physically, then there's no amount of mental help that's actually going to help you. And, that, and that's when I started to really understand how much more training I needed to do, how much harder, how much more intense. So that when I got to those really tough moments, like that Chrissy Wellington story I just described, I actually can push and I have got the ability to push mentally because physically my body is holding up and it's sticking. As you know, like I'm sticking a lunge at the front of the court and I'm not collapsing and I'm hitting the ball with power instead of just pushing it around. And then the gaps on the court aren't opening up quite as much. And then you can actually think about a game plan and about being mentally strong because you're physically just able to underpin all of that. And what kind of changes did you make to your training after that conversation? 
I think we started to kind of um, be a lot more measurable um, and that and that's brutal isn't it so you know I remember Nick Taylor giving me a court sprint session and it was uh, <laughs> 30 sets of 20 court sprints um, and it was five sets five sets of 20 sprints obviously to try and do in a, in a minute which which is not super fast but obviously this session's an hour so it works out at five sets of 20 sprints with um a minute rest five with 45 five with 30 five with 30 five with 45 five with a minute um and that middle block of kind of like basically you're doing 20 sprints for 30 with 30 seconds rest times 10 in the middle was was brutal and that's where you get your mental strength getting through sessions like that but it was also measurable it was hit your 20 hit your rest time go again and if you don't hit your number you you you're not succeeding at the session and it's quite easy isn't it to kind of get on with pressure sessions or bike or you know a run and you'll know this like Stu from like the you know the track work like there's nothing like a track session for making you hit your numbers and court sprints are the same and um sometimes squash can be one of those sports because it's a game where it's not always measurable um you can just kind of do minute on minute off can't you or minute on 30 off as part of a pressure session and it's nowhere near as hard as you know regrouping and having to hit that 20 again after 30 seconds rest so I think it got a lot more measurable it got a lot more intense it got harder and it got longer and you know I just regrouping after those sessions asking myself um you know is it, you know do you want to win or not and regrouping and going again and then having that pride as well when you do get through those sessions like that there's no there's no better feeling than the pride within yourself when you get through a tough session is there no and you're right you can't lie to yourself because you know if you run at a certain pace you'll hit your target and if you don't you're slacking it's yeah. uh it's amazing the mind games that you go through when you're going through those sessions yeah definitely it's also like you say you can't lie to yourself and I always say to players, the only person that will know if you gave 100% in a session is you. Because you can fake 98%, 99%. Like if you're doing those coach sprints in 88, uh, sorry, uh, 58 seconds when you could have done them in 57 seconds, I won't know that as the coach watching you. I'll think that you're giving 100%. But deep down inside, you're the only person that knows if you're holding back and saving yourself. Yeah. Um, exactly. And it's so interesting because normally you can always tell by like the last set of someone like if you're getting to the end of that last set and ideally and this was that was probably a a little bit later in my career but working with Mark who's got a chapter in the book one of the big things for him was um and this was this was before I got to world number one so not so much kind of trying to catch Nicole as much but um he said like he was a big squash player he, he knows his squash stuff and he sort of said I've watched you enough over the years that now to be training you I know where you need to be and you're you basically are someone who goes off at a pace and is very good at holding it and can hold it for a significant amount of time. What I want to try and train you to do is work, like set off like an absolute animal out of the blocks and try and get these people off in under half an hour in those early rounds. So then, then if you get to those places uh, like later on where you've got those, like you're playing Runeem, it's like, okay, she might actually be able to go with you doing that sort of session. Um, and then it's, and then like I just said before, then it comes down to the mental side but it was unbelievable that shift in um he he would say like we would do a um, like a circuit and he'd time me for the for like round 1 round 2 round 3 round 4 and i'd always have my last my last set be my quickest and by the end of working with him over kind of like four four years or so he was like, I want you going out so hard on the first set, two set, that by set three, you're dropping off. And by set four, you're just basically getting through it. And that's what that was the difference. Um, it, it started to get to the point where I was I was trying my hardest and I was slowest on set four. So when you've got people doing court sprints or, you know, all these sessions, if they can get out a quicker time on their last five than they can on their first five, then there's something not quite right with not, 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 not quite right. Obviously there's an education and an understanding around it, but do you, that's what he was so good at making me understand. This is what we want to move you from. We want, we don't want you just holding a pace. We want you going out, hammering it and then let them deal with you. And the result of that was really interesting because it never made the matches any easier for me. If anything, it made it harder. So I remember, for example, playing Donna Urquhart in Chicago 
I went out like an absolute train and came off and was like Stanny one nil it was like 11 seven I was like I'm, is she is she tired I'm knackered and he was like <laughs> she's tired and that what I found was I'd get to six all seven all with people and then they would just go and it was just like seven all absolute battle and then bang 11 seven and it would end looking quite comfortably but it was the pace that I was going out at that pushed me through on those last few points so from an education for players I think that's really big I remember Pete Marshall saying something similar along those lines years ago and he yeah. you know he would watch two guys play we'd watch a national league match player x who would be you know similar level to me or maybe a little bit better is playing against someone like peter barber i'm like geez this is pretty good a four all like it's like no no he's going to fall off the wayside just watch this <laughs> and, and lo and behold like really competitive first half of game one and then it's like a, a gap opens up and then maybe they get a point or two at the end which makes the score look a little better a third of the game in game two and maybe like the first five rallies in yeah. game three look competitive and it's yes yeah, yeah. yeah. it is funny my brother my brother once said to me actually and I'll always remember it like when that scoring changed he sort of had a conversation with him and he said can't quite get my head around like that comfort level of within that you know you always knew that if with with English scoring that it was it just it was self-explanatory how kind of comfortable the game was wasn't it but and I sort of said to him, anything less than 11-8 is, is a fairly comfortable game, I'm going to say. And anything less than probably 11-6 is like a pr- is pretty much a chopping, um, at the pro level at least, because that that's just, you know, you can, you can get five points, can't you, just by kind of like, you know, hitting a really good winner or a couple of errors from your opponent and you've got four or five points on the board. Yeah. But yeah, I think that sort of like seven, seven, sometimes even eight, they've always got that two or three point cushion. It's never too stressful, is it? And then when you get to 11, nine or obviously tie break, then you're like, yeah, that's a tight, tight game. <laughs> Business time. <laughs> yeah, I've always considered seven the threshold because as you say, you, you can either sort of go through the game and get to like six all, seven all, and then they just pull clear and yeah. step, step up a level. Or they get that lead early and they go sort of three love, four one up, and they just hold that three or four point yeah. buffer. Yeah, totally um, right. But seven to me seems to be the th- anything close to like 11 8, 11 9, and tie breaks are reasonably close games. But if you're getting yeah. seven or less, then it's fairly one sided. Yeah. But I wanted to go back to you talked about that whole process of trying to look at your game and speaking to your psychologist. When did that happen? Because when I was going through your career, it seemed like there was a fairly significant shift around 2011 where you sort of broke into the top 10 in 2008 and then you kind of got stuck for three years around sort of 8 to 10 in the rankings. Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering if that coincided with that breakthrough year when you, you actually went from 10th in the world at the start of 2011 and by the end of the year, you were up to three in the world. So wow, was that the... Yeah. <laughs> that was also the... The first tournament of that season, you won in Cleveland, which was, you beat Nicole in the final, which is the first time you'd ever beaten her. Right. Yeah. Interesting. So that kind of, that, that rings a bell of kind of what was going on at that time. And I started working with Phil Whitlock, um, which lasted about two years. And I did, I did definitely go from did about eight in the world to three in the world under kind of his watch. I think it might've even been two in the world um, under Phil's watch um it the 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 coaching the the coaching intensity went to another level so I was working with Nick Taylor he moved to Jersey and he'd actually been the one that sort of said okay I'm leaving you know obviously we can try and keep this relationship going but it's hard you know come to Jersey whenever you want um but I think that Phil could be a really good fit with you is in North Wales it's about an hour and a half um obviously his daughter Emily was coming up she was still a junior at the time um And I talk about that relationship in the book quite a lot. And it went to another level in terms of intensity and expectation. And even to this day, like Phil is the most um, intense coach I've ever worked with. You know, from day one, it was, okay. if I'm going to coach you, I want to know what you're doing every day. I want you to play this way. I want you to... um, fill me in on your practice matches, fill me in on your training. You've got to commit to come at least once a week so that I can see you. Um, he also was the first person to basically, talking about honesty again, go, you're, you're a bit too heavy. Um, you need to be a bit like a Porsche. You need to have a big engine with a light body, light frame. Um, 
And so basically, I mean, everything I've just, everything I've just said to you kind of came like straight away, like this kind of <laughs> 10 pronged attack at me and my squash. Um, and obviously that took its toll and the got and the, and I was nine nil down in that, in that head to head with Nicole before I beat her in that final against Cleveland. And he got me super fit, super strong, playing very, very disciplined squash, very accurate squash, um, and you know, you you sort of like put your work, put those work into those sessions, and then you you kind of again, I guess, talking about that kind of quitting and knowing how hard you're pushing. But when you put in that level of training in and dedication off the court, you don't go on the court for the match and kind of in any way back out. You want it to be be kind of proven that it's been worth it. So I would say that that was a significant significant period, and then. I talk a lot about in the book about the relationship breaking down and what happened there and cut a very long story short. It it got to the point where it was, you know, kind of working with him for two years and just starting to think about realistically hitting that world number one spot and trying to overtake Nicole and who was Nicole at the time. Obviously it was Raneem as well. And what would need to happen for that to happen. And then that became a little bit of a a disagreement and that's where the kind of relationship started to break down but for that period it was very significant in, in making me make that that move up the rankings yeah i've heard, heard you talk about or i've read interviews with you in the last sort of week promoting the book and it seems like nicole features quite heavily because she seems like the, the main driving force through a lot of your yeah. career in terms yeah. of the person that was inspiring you to work harder and she was the person you were constantly looking at to gauge yeah. your, yourself against so how do how do you see her game in comparison to Shabini these days Raneem her best like do you think Nicole would have been as dominant in the last sort of five years as she was in the sort of early 2000s or mid 2000s it's a really tough question, isn't it? It's kind of like the same with like the Sarah Fitzgeralds and the Michelle Martins and the Cassies and Lalanis. It's it's a really tough comparison because um, the game's so different as well. But I, I'm a believer, and I know a lot of people will say say this that I'm a believer that if you can make it to the top in the game in in an era, then you would have made it to the top of the game in any era because you would have. It's like you said, it's more that mental attitude the game changed like Michelle Martin was a different level of different type of fitness and a different type of athlete as was Sarah Fitzgerald than what Shabini is today and I remember being sat um strangely in Malaysia watching um Cassie playing Nicole and we were we were in Malaysia playing on that glass court at the center and Cassie was playing Nicole in the semi-final of like no it was Malaysian Open or something I was sat with Jenny Tramfield and she said you're watching a change in women's squash here. It's going from the powerful, strong hitter, volleyer, to um, speed and, um, you know, how how quick you can get around the court. And she and I'll always remember that because it was spot on. She literally went from Cassie and she beat Cassie that day. I'm not actually sure if Cassie retired injured, but you went from like Cassie, who was a power hitter, Fitzy, who was a power hitter, volleyer, not particularly the best movers, but didn't have to be, to Nicole, Rachel Grinham, Natalie Grinham, and everything went super fast. Everything started going in the front of the court a little bit more from the Grinhams at least. And then now obviously we know the Egyptians. So I think Nicole would have adapted to that. I think she brought something special um, in terms of her physicality that changed the game, changed the women's game. And I think if if the Egyptians had been ra- around a little bit earlier, I think she'd have developed her game in a different way as well. Um, but you know, I, that's that's just my opinion, and it's so it's so hard to know, isn't it? She also brought. I remember you said before a level of professionalism, <clears throat> excuse me, yeah, to the game that hadn't really been seen. I think sorry Stuart like an air of mystery where as a as a as a player at events you didn't you knew nothing about her nothing at all she was just with her team the whole time and that had a a real kind of you know aura made it made her have an aura when you stepped on court yeah and I saw you say in an interview recently that you also tried to sort of model yourself on that and I know you got married quite a quite young but that sort of helped you because you would bring Danny to tournaments and you maybe weren't spending as much time socially with the other girls but you felt that gave you an edge in terms of they didn't know as much about you and you weren't sort of 
accidentally slipping and going for a coffee and saying, oh yeah, I was injured last week and giving away <laughs> yeah. little things like that. So definitely, definitely. And it was, you know, and, and having DP there a lot um, helped. And I think it was a really, really big thing for, you know, again, people didn't know who I was when I started sort of taking that mindset. It was, and that attitude can win you two or three points a match uh, where you're, you know, I almost, I, I was trying to talk about this a little bit the other day in an interview, kind of like almost became Laura Massaro, the mentally strong ice queen persona, like way before I kind of realized I was myself. And then it became quite easy to actually play up to that, um, which I think is a really interesting thing in the book for young people, how wouldn't necessarily say it was fake it till you make it type thing. But, you know, how do you beat Nicole for that first time when you've been beaten nine times in a row? Because you don't believe necessarily you've somehow got to get out of your own way mentally and kind of play up to that like strong woman persona and be like I'm just going to give it my all and then try and fake it when it gets to the key point and that was what was so important I'd also that match with Nicole like not only did I have all that training with Phil behind me but I actually had started working a bit more with a psychologist who had got me a lot more kind of performance focused and that match sticks out as one of my best matches for being completely focused on, on, on every, every shot in every rally rather than, Oh, Oh my God, I'm about to win the match. And, you know, it's been several times where I've, Oh my God, I'm serving for the match and your heart rate speeds up with Nicole, that match, that, that one match is probably my whole career. That first time I beat her where I didn't, didn't even almost realize I was match ball. I was just playing the next rally, doing the same tactics, tactics that I'd done for the rest of the match. Nobody beats Laura Massaro 10 times in a row. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to, to, like, you know, the point of getting to the end and then trying to kind of fake it or convince yourself that you that you do believe it, it's so much harder than in person in that moment than it is to just say like, oh, yeah, you know, once you get there, you just need to believe in yourself that you can do it. Well, when I've been, you know, when you've lost every other time and when you haven't kind of proven yourself yet or maybe like learn those lessons, it is tough for that first time to get over the hurdle. But um, yeah, but yeah, I mean, that's where the where that other mental work right comes in, where like hopefully that takes you takes your mind even away from those thoughts in the first place. And you don't even have to think about it. You're just present. So, yeah. And I remember I talk a lot about I talk about an, a particular um, a particular process that I did with my psychologist on belief change. It's called the organic belief change, and it's it was specifically kind of we did it around not believing that I could win these gold these gold events, what they were at the time, and and there's something to be said for kind of shifting your mindset in in that perspective as well. So if you can try and work on your belief a little bit off the court on like maybe it maybe what is a little bit bigger picture winning an event rather than just beating Nicole we we changed my belief setting in that in that process and it was massive um and then obviously you just have to keep yourself completely focused on the task in hand when you get to that point when you have a win like that you, you then approach every match believing well I've beaten Nicole so I can beat anyone now or do you still have those doubts about well Maybe that was just a day where I performed at my best and there's a lot that has to happen for that to, to go my way again. Or does it just give you this added self-belief and confidence that you didn't have before? I'd say a little, I'd say uh, definitely a little bit of both. I was always someone who worried. I was a massive worrier, got nervous a lot, like a lot more. That's another reason I wanted to write the book. I think I said it in the PSA interview the other day. I'm like, if people think I had head, my head screwed on and you think you've got you know everything together, I just wanted to basically write and be like, I didn't and I haven't. And so, you know, it's okay to not have everything together. So I, I think, think the word you yeah. used was nutter, Laura. Yeah, nutter. <laughs> uh, if I'm a nutter, God knows how much of a nutter everyone else must be. Or like, if, if they think I'm a nutter, But yeah, I, so I always, always worried about losing, about performing badly. But I can always, I can almost always say as well that there was always a belief. There was always kind of like that belief of if I play well and I put a performance together, I can beat anyone in the world. My worry was whether or not I could put a performance together on that day in that match. Um, and, and I was just saying to one of the girls I coached yesterday, actually, about 
um, you know, a little bit about my upbringing and how it, the, the downside of having such a, you know, kind of uh, pressurized junior career where, you know, it was important to really win. I set off on my senior, senior kind of journey with a, with a massive fear of failure and never really, never really enjoyed a lot of that early career. But what it gave me was this, when I, when I finally figured it out towards the end of my career, where I started to win my big titles, I started to realize that I could have that, um, I could get my nerves and my performance under control, but I still was left with this real inner determination and steeliness of this, what would, what was the, what was left of that fear of failure. So I think that's where I basically got it together a little bit towards the end of my career. Awesome. We were, we were just discussing uh, briefly before you got on the uh, Naomi Osaka um, story, you know, where for mental health reasons and for reasons of not wanting to kind of be bothered by the press, she, she dropped out. So we, we wanted to get your take on that before, before we let you go. Yeah, I, uh, I mean, yeah, you've seen so much, haven't you, the last few days? And it's, it's a bit, it's crazy to think about. Um, I guess the first thing is just that I, you know, can't, can't really fully put myself in that situation because I've never had those obviously you have ups and downs and dark times and sad times. And, but I can't ever really say that I've, I've been in that kind of, I've ever been depressed or really struggled with my mental health. And with, with that must come a whole different ball game of kind of, you know, expectation and, and anxiety. So it's probably, probably kind of fair to say like, you know, if you need to do what you need to do for you and you, and to protect your mental health, that's, that's absolutely fine. And you should, you know, it's her life. It's no one else's kind of opinion to judge on that. Having said that, it's, you know, I read a couple of reports that sort of said it's, it's a heck of a lot easier to do that when you're earning so much money and you're in a job that you can do that. There's a lot of people who haven't got that luxury and they're really struggling with their mental health, but that doesn't make that situation right. I guess what, what, what's interesting is she's been able to step away and, and honestly, I don't know if I would have had the guts to do what she's done, even if I'd have been suffering with my mental health. And maybe it might give the courage to a lot of lower ranked younger people to have that courage to step up and say, you know, I'm really struggling with my mental health because it's only when people kind of that you look up to or older people and, you know, similar in squash, you were always the one that was like, you know, set, set your league money high and set your sponsorship money high because you're setting the bar for everyone below you. And so from that perspective, her stepping away and showing that that's okay might just actually make someone who's a bit more scared or a bit more inexperienced have that, have that capacity to do so. Obviously the media, the media obligations on the squash tour aren't as much, but, um, but like, did you ever feel, you know, that you didn't, didn't want to do things or that it was just kind of annoying and disruptive? Uh, I noticed now, like after some of these, you know, hundred minute matches and they put they within, you know, probably two minutes, they kind of have a microphone in the, in the winner's face. And obviously the loser, I don't think we want to be doing that, but even the winners, like, it's like a long time to be in there battling and being, you know, at war. And then all of a sudden you're being asked all these questions and you're being asked about your opponent and you probably haven't even really had time to think or settle at all. So. And and, and obviously the tennis kind of comments um, reporters seem so much more aggressive, so much more after the, you know, they're after that kind of big line, like all, all the journalists are, uh, when it comes to that and that that's what's really tough I mean yeah again can't really compare in terms of squash and tennis and the interviews and stuff because we would probably be more than happy to have that many media sit in front of us after a match but at the same time um you know she, having it having a microphone stuck in your face after you've lost which which luckily within squash that's not what they do so if if you are interviewed it's normally straight it's normally after a win which which is that which you're more than happy to do but to go into that press conference and have to sit there particularly after a bad loss and then have all sorts of questions thrown at you is really really tough um but yeah, I mean, I can only probably describe it as how I would have maybe approach a drug tester after a loss. <laughs> I mean, you get thrown on that job, <laughs> trying to follow someone around and chase them down. Um, and you get really frustrated and, and kind of annoyed with them and stuff. And, and that's, partic- that's probably 
as tough as it as it gets for a squash player. Um, we, we were also talking earlier about the difference between sports-specific journalists that are there to cover the sport and they're asking questions that are directly related to your performance versus, especially at the Grand Slams, where, you know, in the UK, there's a lot of just generic media yeah. that show up at Wimbledon that probably haven't seen another tennis tournament for the other 50 weeks of the year. And their priority is very much to get sort of headline grabbers. Um, and I can imagine for tennis players dealing with those sort of journalists that don't really care about the, the on-court performances is probably even more frustrating. They're trying to get a headline, aren't they? That's what that's what sells newspapers. And I mean, I was a bit mortified yesterday when an article came out in the Telegraph over here, which is obviously a fairly big national newspaper. And I I couldn't believe I couldn't believe the headline that they'd chosen, which was something along the lines of how the contraceptive pill helped me get to be the world's best. And I was just like, all right, there's there's one thing like talking about female issues, there's another thing. And then I read the article. It was absolutely fine, you know, kind of obviously touched on it a little bit. I mean, obviously, just to kind of anyone listening to this, it was basically about how it kind of obviously can help females um, perform at certain times of the month and help kind of make sure that you're you know what's happening and when it's happening, which obviously is a big thing. And and also the weight gain, which can come or not come. Um, and that was it. That was like, a you know, hardly anything. And the rest of it was all about how I got to the top of the game and what it took and I was, I text the, you know, PR team that are on it for the book and they were, they were like, just share it. You, ha- you have to share it. It's like national news and you, they're all, they're only after a headline, but it, it was only when I read the article, I was like, oh, okay, that's not anywhere near as bad as what the headline sort of says, but it, I can't even imagine if you were getting that kind of like week in, week out, day in, day out for something that you've sort of said or touched upon. And then it's just gone, you know, kind of run, they've just run with it, haven't they? Solid articles, yeah. Sorry if I've just made you all really uncomfortable. No, no, it's going to be the article, actually. I was just like, I don't have to, yeah. I was just thinking like, yeah, that, I don't have to really, no one's really writing articles about me, so. <laughs> don't There's but another yeah. ten, tennis player, Heather Watson, has actually been really outspoken in the yeah. press a couple of years ago about like period pains and, and dealing with, with that whole, like her menstrual yeah. cycle and the impact it has on yeah. performance, so. yeah. And as you'll know as well, like a lot of it, I mean, squash is, squash is a sport. It's a game at the end of the day you're playing. But if you're in a sport that's like, you know, get from point A to point B, percentage changes of how you feel in your body and how you are mentally can make, you know, all the difference. And I know from playing with different different women in different England teams or whatever are very much like, you know, very indecisive, which is obviously a mental capacity. And people don't often talk about that. And I think it's a big thing for male coaches as well to kind of appreciate that and that understanding and um there's also a lot that kind of research done around injuries in cycle now and how you can get you know more likely to do kind of like an ACL around certain periods of your uh, cycle and uh Jessica Ennis has actually just come up she's got a brilliant fitness app for anyone who is really interested in that and she's just launched a section of that app that is about working with and training through your cycle so it's really that's that's had a lot of media attention over here as well so um yeah but the head going back to the headlines it was a bit of a shock yesterday and I was a bit mortified thinking oh my gosh like you know I hope I haven't upset anyone or you know it's obviously young young kids and parents and everything but um if you're not getting that daily or weekly it must be really hard I've been doing Jessica Ennis's core sessions for the last year Although they're about four minutes long and I was slightly put out when Gautier talked about his hour-long core sessions. So (laughs) put put my Jessica Ennis four-minute ab sessions to shame. Yeah, but I mean, she's probably doing that every every day. She she was in Sheffield training under the same... I saw her quite a bit in Sheffield when I was training with Mark and some of the stuff that she can do. I mean, Greg's probably not doing that before the (laughs) four-minute... Before the four-minute ab session. Yeah, unfortunately, I do not have Jessica Ennis's abs yet. <laughs> not when you do. No. Well, uh, Laura, listen, thanks again for, for coming on to speak about your book. Congratulations again on it. It's amazing. Uh, and the insight you've just given us into, it's just, I'm actually really into excited life. to read it. Yeah, bring it to life. There we go. <laughs> yeah. Good luck being a mother when it comes along. Yeah, yeah. amazing. Congrats. That's what, I mean, I feel like I need more luck for that than anything else going forward at the moment, but... 
yeah great no thanks guys really really enjoy the chat and thanks for having me on i'm glad to hear the podcast is still going well yeah it's going. <laughs> we're gonna uh we're gonna do a book review once uh we get the audio book for Stu. yeah i'll get through it i only need two days of running and i'll be done with it <laughs> last heard last heard i she texted me and said we're up to 12 hours on the uh, audio book recording. I'm like, what? 12 hours? I've obviously spoken for that amount of time. But the amount of kind of like make a mistake, top of the paragraph, make, oh, it's relentless, <laughs> relentless. So I'm hoping it's not 12 hours. It's just that it took me a long time to to do that and get, and obviously, you know, then I, then there was words I couldn't say and <laughs> but, 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 yeah, great experience. A few F-bombs in there, huh? <laughs> looking, looking we should forward definitely to the... do an audio book outtake, you know, yeah, like. The bloopers. Going, yeah. <laughs> yeah, fuck. <laughs> Shit, not again. <laughs> yeah, awesome. Well, look, congrats and best of luck with it. And I'm sure it'll inspire a lot of people that's for sure yeah thank you thanks guys and yeah let me know what when you've read it what you think and uh look forward to hearing the review don't be too harsh we won't <laughs> we, we know won't. you can take the honesty though oh no <laughs> <laughs> i know you're i know you're you're honest Stuart, more than anyone <laughs> book number two could be called all in again <laughs> i'm all in again yeah all out yeah <laughs> true no, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me on. Cheers, Laura. See you later. Have a good one. Bye. Cheers. Bye. Well, thanks again for, to Laura for coming on to the show, the former world number one and world champion. Her book, All In, can be ordered on Amazon. You can check it out. And audio book for Stu will be out at the end of the month. It was a good one. That was a good one. Very good one.